0: Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Becoming Byzantine webinar. So it's good to be with you all again. Um, we hope you're enjoying the series and that you're really connecting with reading the catechism and working through this material. So it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, I'm going to take you back to hosting again uh, this evening, and I'm joined with an incomparable crew. Um Ever wonderful, uh, Father Daniel Dozier, uh, pastor extraordinaire and uh, author of uh, the Twenty Answers on Eastern Catholicism, published by Catholic Answers. So good to see you, Father Daniel. How have you been?
0: I've been doing well, and nice to see you as well. Yeah, uh, and uh, along with Father Deacon, it's always good to get the trio together. So.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and always uh, good to be with Father Deacon Anthony Dragani again. Good evening. Father Deacon, Good evening, how are Robert. you, Robert? Fantastic. Happy to be Good. back with you guys. Absolutely, and of course, uh, Father Deacon Anthony is a deacon. A uh, has his doctorate in theology, and the very very helpful website uh, easttowest.org. That's East and the number two. So E A S T, the number two W E S T dot org. Um, it's a great great website for. Kind of getting into a lot of the topics we're discussing, getting into Byzantine theology in general, uh, parsing out the similarities and differences between East and West. It's a website back to, so it's a great, great service to the church. Thanks to Father Father Deacon Anthony. Um, we're missing tonight our algorithm expert uh, Bianca, but we will soldier along anyway, and we will muddle through. Um, So we'll do the best we can. Um, For those of you who have forgotten, my name is Robert Klesko. Um, I am a uh, deacon candidate for the arch of Pittsburgh, uh, father of six, and uh, I'm just uh, tickled to be part of this crew. It's just been a wonderful uh, way to engage my own kind of formation, my own uh, kind of uh, theo- theological dive into the East in a deeper respect. So it's it's great to be with everybody again. Uh, this series is put on by Vineyard of the Lord Catholic Ministries and co-sponsored by the Byzantine Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix. So we're thankful for those organizations to help us put this educational series and of course, we rely on our audience. Um, this is a pre-record, so we don't have an audience this evening, um, but certainly we're going to put this online and people are going to watch um, and uh, engage with us. Uh, please do remember that this is a ministry and because it is a ministry um, and between the three of us, we are relatively, we're, we're poor workers in the Lord's Vineyard. Um, so your financial contributions to our work are very appreciated. Uh, and a link will be forthcoming. We'll probably put that in the show notes. I think we can do that on YouTube. So uh, always, always uh, love to engage with our audience when they're there. But when you're not there, that's okay. We'll we'll, we'll catch up with you next time, uh, for sure. Um, so today, very, very exciting. We're transitioning into uh, Christ our Pascha number 255 through 226. Uh, on really on the life of the Holy Spirit in the church a really really uh, topic uh, very appropriate topic to contemplate um, especially as we approach the Lenten season um, but before we get into some new material um, we're going to spend some time looking back at a couple of points that we ran out of time last time uh, so we're going to kind of catch up and then we're going to very quickly uh, maybe we'll have some time towards the end to discuss. Generally, the next topic, which will be, uh, we're moving away from the second section of the catechism into the next section. So the next section is on the prayer of the church. So living that kind of Byzantine Catholic prayer life, um, which again, will be very apropos for the Lenten season. So a lot of wonderful things to talk about this evening. So we will try to do these things justice. Uh, with the grace of God. So let's call on the grace of God right now. So, Father Deacon Anthony, could you lead us in prayer, please?
2: Certainly. Uh, We'll be doing a prayer for the Holy Spirit to come into us and guide us this evening. Heavenly King, Advocate, Spirit of Truth, whoever we're present and fill all things, Treasurer of Blessings, bestower of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all that defiles us, and a good one, save our souls. Amen. Amen. So
1: anyway, last time uh, we we took uh, uh, we basically went through the gospel. Um, so we, we took a big big chunk: of Jesus's ministry, the miracles, the healings, all that good stuff. So we keep we t- keep offering you a full course meal, um, which is great. But one thing that we didn't get to last time was the end of the world, which is something that people generally like to know about what we as Byzantine Christians think about eschatology. Um, so I wanted to revisit that. Um, so uh, I wanted to to ask, because one of my favorite biblical scholars uh, is the Anglican T. Wright. Um, I enjoy his books immensely. In, in several of his books, he has this kind of catchphrase, uh, which is pretty cute. He says often, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, we often think, you know, you, you go through this life and you pass away and then the soul goes to God. Um, and that's kind of where our thinking stops. So I wanted to start there. Um, what do you think he means by that? Heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. Um, really what he's asking about is when Christ returns, what will that look like? Um, and is there anything particular in our Byzantine tradition that that colors our interpretation of that event? So, for Father Daniel or Father Anthony, by all means, have at it.
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess I could chime in. I, you know, it's interesting. When we think about the end of the world. I I like to think about it uh, in in terms of the the Greek term telos, right? Uh, the the end of the world. What is the what does that mean? Not just in terms of like the end of a of a, a story that unfolds chronologically and comes to a certain conclusion, but in, in terms of, you know, what is it intended to be? What is, how does it achieve its, its full realization, uh, its full purpose? And that I think really is answered by the phrase, the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, when we think about the kingdom of God, you know, Jesus appears on the scene, John the the Baptist and forerunner appears on the scene, and they're announcing this this inauguration of the kingdom of God. So clearly, at least in the synoptic gospels, it plays such a pivotal role in understanding the mission, the identity, the purpose of Jesus and his his prophet and forerunner. A a very simple definition of the kingdom of God is that it is the holy reign of a holy God uh, in the midst of a holy people over a holy creation. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, this, what I call the Emmanuel principle, uh, really is at the heart of the the meaning of the kingdom of God, that it's God reigning in the midst of his people. And the important thing to think about when we think about the end of the world or its purpose, its goal, just as we hear Jesus say in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Uh, The world from, especially from a Byzantine perspective, but you could probably say a Byzantine Franciscan perspective, uh, especially through the writings of St. Maximus the Confessor, uh, the world was made in and through the word with the goal of the incarnation of the Son of God, uh, the goal of Emmanuel, and so when God made the world through the word, as we hear about in the prologue of John's gospel, he made it with the intention that that word would become incarnate and be Emmanuel, God reigning in our midst, and so all of creation, you know, it's kind of like uh, Stephen Covey in the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, mm-hmm. begin with the end in mind. God truly began with the end in mind, and that end was the incarnate king uh, establishing his kingdom. And so uh, with Jesus being, you know, the predestined end of the created world, uh, we, we factor into that, especially as human beings, because we become the perfect vessel uh, through which the incarnation would take place. And so being made in the image and likeness of God, uh, God has a certain destiny for humanity, and but not just humanity, but all of creation. Uh, one way to, to think about it, and this going back to St. Maximus, when the world was made through the word, the Logos, uh, it imprinted his, its Logi, uh, its words, upon all of creation. That Logi or that Logoi, however you want to pronounce it, Really represents the destiny of all created being in the kingdom. And so uh, this really becomes the principle of our understanding of what worship is all about. You know, it's about taking what God has given, you know, in, in God condescending to give us life, uh, to give us uh, you know, the, the goodness of life, to elevate us, that katabasis anabasis to elevate us to participate in grace and glory. Uh, that's, that circular motion is really the definition of worship, where we're offering back to God the good things he has given us so that he can elevate us to participate in, uh, in the sonship of Jesus Christ. And so, so if, we, if we go back to this understanding of what is the end of creation, it really is its fulfillment in the kingdom of God, that kingdom of the son predestined from the very beginning. And so what we experience now in the liturgy is a foretaste of that end. I always think uh, it's, it's fascinating when you go into a Byzantine church and you see the Pantocrator, you know, in the dome, you see Christ, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in one sense, we're getting a sort of a view of Christ as he ascended into glory to be with uh, at the right hand of, of God the Father, but it's not only just that moment of ascent, it's also his moment of return, uh, and so as he is returning over this redeemed cosmos imaged in the icon of the Byzantine temple, the, the Christian church, uh, where all of creation is, is being renewed and, and brought up to participate in heavenly glory, it doesn't mean that we, we suddenly leave the created world behind. No, it means it's being yeah. absolutely redeemed and fulfilled in its destiny by the Pantocrator, or by the mm-hmm. Lord Almighty, who's coming to return to, to create a new heaven and a new earth. So long-winded mm-hmm. answer, but, but I think that's one way to think about the end of the world, the end of the world is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and the church becomes that sacrament of the kingdom, uh, both now and in eternity.
2: That was a beautiful answer, Father Daniel. Um, just to build on that a bit, you know, we talked in a previous webinar about the, the earth being created as a temple for the Son. Now, ultimately, the earth was made for the Son to be his temple uh, so all creation was made for God and was made to be the dwelling place of God. Uh, sadly, we're in a situation now where the earth and all of creation is corrupted, you know, but it's not going to be that way forever. Every divine liturgy begins with, you know, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the idea there isn't so much that we're ascending to heaven. I mean, that's part of it, but part of it is that heaven and earth are coming together. Yeah. You know, the divine and the material are uniting. You know, in our uh, Byzantine churches, we have the icon screen at the front and the icon screen in a way symbolizes the meeting of heaven and earth. And it's no coincidence that on every icon screen we have, you know, Jesus and we have Mary and, you know, Mary is pivotal to the incarnation. And of course, Jesus is the incarnate word. So in the incarnation, that's where heaven and earth first meet, you know, the, the divine and created matter in a being Jesus, but then all of creation can be transformed in the sense that the divine can come into it. The heavenly can infiltrate the physical. I mean, at the pinnacle, of the divine liturgy is the Eucharist in which bread and wine, material matter, you know, becomes divine. It becomes divine. So the whole theme of our liturgy, in a sense, is the heavenly entering into the physical and the physical and the heavenly joining. So that's the destiny of all creation. The whole world ultimately is groaning to be redeemed as saint yeah. paul says right yeah. you know that all of creation is groaning to be redeemed and at, at the end that will happen we oftentimes think that when we die if we're going to be with the lord we're going to go spend eternity in heaven but that really isn't what the bible lays out you know heaven no. as a, a spiritual realm isn't permanent it's temporary the ultimate is for heaven and earth to come together as one you know and for all of us to live in physical resurrected bodies. In a physical earthly world, that's also heaven, you know, heaven and earth united as one. Um, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien talks about this, this beautiful image of creation being redeemed. And he, he refers to it like this. And I think this is so beautiful. He refers to it as everything sad coming untrue. Everything sad coming untrue. When that happens, all of creation will be redeemed and the world will be as it was always meant to be, ultimately a temple to the Lord.
0: Yeah, and you know, I I I love the way you placed you put that. Two two things come to mind when you said that. First, it, when people come in and they see that the iconostasis, the, the question I'm sure we all get asked is, why is there a big wall there separating <laughs> the uh, the altar from the nave? And to your point, uh, Father Deacon, it's it's not separating; it's uniting. It's it's meant to signify the incarnation. Um, you know, the Son of God bringing heaven and earth together in Himself. And I think that's that's the best answer that, that, uh, that we can offer to people. It's not a wall of separation. And, and I think that's also signified by the doors, you know, there's access from from heaven to earth and from earth into heaven, you know, all that's happening in in the liturgy. Uh, One of the
2: big themes, one of the big themes in the liturgy is entrance, right? mm, You know, there's the little entrance with the gospel book, you know, then there's the great entrance with the gifts. Um, But really the whole liturgy is about heaven and earth entering one another. And the fact that we have the doors is a way of almost like dramatically representing this theme of entrance.
0: Absolutely. No. And I, and I think, I think this also speaks to the importance and I know we'll get into this when we start talking about the prayer of the church with father Michael Wynn and, and others, you know, it's, it's meant to be a participation in that glory. So our experience of worship should be different from going to the dentist office, uh, you know, from, uh, from going to the shopping mall, uh, from going to see a band in concert, it it needs to be something so distinctive, and it, it, it should be. And the liturgy is meant to lift up our hearts, uh, and I and I think that's that speaks to the importance of what we're trying to um, uh, what we're trying to uh, you know emphasize, especially in our worship, is that the, the the worship becomes that means to participate in the glory of God. So we need to let all the glory radiate out in our in our yeah. music in our sacred art and our singing and and movement and participation so anyway i don't want to yeah. go on but that, that, mm-hmm. that i think is just really important
1: absolutely beautiful beautiful answers um and really as you both were speaking um i guess it was dawning on me how important a catechetical point this is because i think we still live in a culture that gets eschatology completely wrong um there's still this overriding cultural image of destruction and annihilation and hopelessness which is not the biblical vision at all um and unfortunately there are our fellow christians who get this wrong and i think that the the byzantine perspective especially kind of uh putting our eschatological hope in that image of cosmic liturgy, and and recapitulation in Christ, that's 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 an important word too. That, that Christ is coming back to make everything new again, to restore everything to the glory that God had intended in the beginning, and not only that, but then to make it permanent. Uh, to make it permanent, um, you know. I remember when I was uh, I was teaching. Uh, uh, Catholic high school. And I had so many of my students who would say, you know, I heard this homily about the end of the world and the priest said it was going to be like mass, but it would go on forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And I was like, ah, you know, that is such, I mean, it's, it's a kernel of the truth, right? Right. You know, because it is, it is liturgical. um, But it's so much more dynamic and engaged. I mean, that the beautiful and wonderful things that God has created are all part of that cosmic liturgy, right? So our liturgy is gorgeous, you know, and especially in the Byzantine Church. But with all of creation participating, mm-hmm. it's going to blow us. I mean, it's it's no eye nor ear hurt, but what God ready, you know. It's it's just such such beauty such beauty that we're never going to tire of it and this is something that i think as the church we need to say over and over and over again um, because it's really attractive and it's really a a beautiful part of our faith so thank you both for your answers wonderful wonderful so good springboard um into the next section of the catechism which just which discusses the holy spirit the lord the giver of life Um, So the new material that we're covering this time. Um, So Christ our Pascha starts off this section by looking back at the Old Testament, uh, which is great. You know, our faith is so rooted in that Old Testament tradition. And God had been preparing the groundwork for the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the events of salvation history. Um, So Christ our Pascha talks about the prefigurations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Old Testament. And I think one of those main prefigurations uh, we find in the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, right? So let's start out a bit. Maybe uh, if we can put Pentecost in its Old Testament context and then carry it forward to see how Pentecost in the New Testament is the apt event for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Father Daniel or Deacon Anthony, have at it.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, you know, so it's interesting, and I think it's apropos, as as you said, that we focus on the Holy Spirit, especially during the Lenten time. It's uh, a lot of the times we think about the focus of Lent or the great fast or great Lent uh, as being that of Pascha, uh, the resurrection. But in fact, uh, I would contend that it's the ascension of Christ and Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, that really is the consummating point of this time of preparation. It, it's almost as though you could say that resurrection uh, heals the vessel, just uh, it, like it, like in baptism, it, it, the vessel is healed to receive the anointing fire of the Spirit. So all the cracks, all the brokenness, uh, all of that's brought into a, to a point of restoration now through through the grace of Christ in resurrection to receive that anointing fire of the spirit uh, and then to participate through the grace of the spirit in, in the body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, in the Eucharist. So just like in the mysteries of initiation, you know, that, that we receive the gift of the spirit now in the divine liturgy as well. So there's, there's a lot of things that I think are important and having a Pentecostal focus mm. um, I think is, is an important way to, to reorient our um, the way we understand uh, Lent and the Paschal cycle. Uh, but, but you asked about Pentecost. So Pentecost in the, in the, in the Christian uh, church, uh, the, the Pentecost means it's that time of the descent of the Holy Spirit over the Apostles, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, um, where the Apostles, the disciples, the Virgin Mary are gathered together in the upper room. And then we have this mighty rushing wind uh, that comes through in the upper room while they're praying after, after nine days of prayer. Uh, after the Ascension, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary and the apostles and the disciples in tongues of fire. <clears throat> now, the the Old Testament feast of Pentecost uh, is is really a feast. It was a feast to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, but it was it was it came to signify the giving of God's covenant law to Israel uh, through Moses on Mount Sinai. So. Um, you know, when Israel had passed through the waters of the, of the Red Sea and had gone to the, the mountain of God, uh, being delivered from bondage and slavery uh, to uh, Pharaoh um, and, to, uh, and to Egypt, now they were ready to receive the law of God. But when we, we think about, like, all the different connecting points to that particular moment and to Pentecost, we really have to k- kind of think about the spirit of God at the very beginning of creation. So we think about all the different signs and how it all comes together in this imagery, both in Exodus, as well as in the book of Acts. uh, We kind of have to pay attention to some of these Old Testament types. So first of all, uh, we have the imagery of the wind of God in Genesis 1, you know, where we have God's breath, his wind is hovering over the waters of chaos. Uh, The world is formless and void, and now the wind of God the breath of god if you will is uh, is over the waters and is going to bring order uh and and life to god's creation this is uh the way the spirit of god working along with the word the father is going to create this cosmic temple that father deacon anthony alluded to so the spirit appears first as a as a wind of god then it's also the divine breath and this is where we have the creation of adam adam created from the earth kind of like a tree of sorts coming forth from the earth and God breathing the breath of life, his spirit into uh, into man, uh, man being made and established as the image and likeness of God and the Sabbath being that day of God's divine enthronement over this cosmic temple where Adam and Eve will serve uh, as priests, prophets, kings and queens, sons and daughters in this temple that God is going to establish. So the breath of God is going to give life and grace to endow us with the uh the ability to exercise co-regency with god to be to reign with god uh in uh, in the spirit another image from the old testament is uh is the all-consuming fire and that's that that imagery of fire is very important it even goes back to the time immediately after the fall uh we know that adam and eve being banished from the garden we have the cherubic angel with the fiery sword blocking access to paradise well, uh, that, that was also the place uh, of what are called the gate liturgies, where liturgies and sacrifices were offered uh, there at the gate, at the entryway to paradise, uh, so that, uh, you know, they could see the mountain of God. They were there at the very entrance uh, to that gate of paradise, blocked by the cherubic angel uh, with the flaming sword, and they would offer sacrifices. Well, how did they know whether their sacrifices were accepted? Well, the rabbis speculate, and I think there's grounds for this, especially in light of, for instance, the, the great liturgical battle between the prophet Elijah and the, and the false mm-hmm. priests of Baal in 1 Kings, that fire came down from heaven to consume the gifts, and that's, that's an early rabbinical tradition, and that this happened at the gate to the entryway to paradise, this all-consuming fire, consuming the gifts. Well, this consuming fire is what indicated to Cain that his sacrifice was not accepted because there was no fire, whereas Abel's was. So the first battle was really a liturgical war between two brothers and, uh, and, the, and the all-consuming fire consuming the gifts, uh, the epiclesis, if you will, the calling down of the spirit upon the gifts was the indication that the, the sacrifice was acceptable to the Lord. Well, then we have the dove over the ark and the, and the, uh, the Noah and the ark, that, that whole account where, you know, that was seen by the fathers, especially uh, as the sign of God's promise uh, to heal the land and to redeem the world and to begin again in a new creation. Then we have the Shekinah glory cloud, which was this fiery glory cloud that appeared uh, over top of, well, first of all, it's what led Israel out of Egypt. And then led them through the red sea and then took them to the mountain where it uh was basically inhabited the top of the mountain moses entered into this fiery glory cloud on top of the mountain and then that same fiery glory cloud descended upon the ark of the covenant the mercy seat and so the tent of uh, the tent of the tabernacle became this portable liturgical mountain filled with the fiery presence of god Uh, That would um, that would have successors in, for instance, the uh, uh, the uh, tent of David and then the temple of Solomon. And then later on, the uh, the second temple, Uh, that fiery presence of God, the Shekinah glory cloud, uh, which which appeared and was a very fearsome thing to behold, actually departs. The first temple Ezekiel has a vision, sees it departing the temple before the Babylonians come in and destroy uh destroy jerusalem destroy the holy city and destroy the temple but that was that was significant because it signified god's presence in his people but it made the temples and the and the tabernacles uh sort of an image of the incarnation uh, of emmanuel of god with us in the midst of his people and then finally we have the image also from the exodus tradition of this idea of the finger of god and all this is going to come together in pentecost in just a second so the finger of God. There there are a couple of times the finger of God is mentioned. Uh, First, it's mentioned at the third plague of Egypt. It signifies the power and judgment of God, where you have uh, Aaron is instructed by Moses to strike the ground, and then the dust flies up, it becomes the gnats. And then, of course, the pharaoh's magicians try to replicate this. They said, we can't. They said, "What, what he has done is truly representing the finger of God, a sign of God's power over creation and judgment but the finger of God appears again when God writes his law on the tablets of stone. So Moses is on Mount Sinai. God is giving his law for his people. He writes it on tablets of stone signifying the hard heartedness of Israel. God is going to write his commandments. He's going to write his Torah, his law on that through his finger, through the finger of God. And then Jesus later uh, identifies the, the finger of God as the spirit of God when uh, he heals a, uh, a blind and mute man uh, from a demon. He's criticized, and he says in Luke's gospel, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that parallel passage in Matthew says that says the spirit of God rather than the finger of God. So Jesus brings these two images together. Now, how does this relate to Pentecost? All these different images. We've got the wind of God, the all-consuming fire, the divine breath, the Shekinah glory cloud, and the finger of God. Well, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah uh, that in the new covenant, God is going to write his law on hearts of flesh, the flesh of a faithful people. This stone signifying the hard-heartedness is going to be transformed into living flesh. God is going to write his law with his finger, basically with the spirit of God uh, upon the hearts of flesh, the flesh of his people. And where does that happen? It happens at Pentecost. Pentecost, we have Uh, First of all, this mighty rushing wind, we have the tongues of fire appearing upon the Virgin Mary and the apostles and the disciples in the upper room. The spirit of God is coming in power. Uh, The finger of God is coming in power and uh, and also is a mighty rushing wind with fire to bring about a new creation and to fill the upper room uh, to make it the new mountain of God. That was one of the uh, the early Christians referred to the upper room as uh, as a spiritual Mount Zion, and so here on Mount Zion, the Spirit of God was descending it, a, a successor to Sinai, but now the Spirit of God is coming to write the law of God on the, on hearts of flesh, and to send them out to, um, to actually create a whole new priesthood in a, in a whole new cosmic temple, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, I'll, I'll end it with this, uh, this, this imagery, the number 3,000 are the souls that were saved that day, Through the preaching of Peter and the apostles, right? And then they were all baptized, they came to repentance, they were baptized, they received the grace of faith, uh, and became consecrated as priests. Why do we think that number 3,000 is significant? Because that is precisely the number of the Israelites that were struck down by the Levites after they engaged in the idolatry of of the um, golden calf worship, and Israel was essentially defrocked. It was its priesthood of the firstborn was removed and exclusively given to the tribe of Levi. Three thousand fell that day, and so now the Lord has brought the three thousand back. He's made a kingdom of priests through the Spirit of God in the power of God, and they're now going to uh, going to engage in the worship of a new Israel of God at this new Pentecost uh, that's being that's being celebrated, where the Spirit is writing the law of God on our hearts. So that's Boy, that's a lot there, but that's that's essentially some of the connections we can make uh, when it comes to uh, Pentecost and the gift of the spirit
1: beautiful, beautiful um, I appreciated how you tied that up together like a, a nice uh, biblical package that was that was well done. I enjoyed that uh, father anthony anything any thoughts any follow up uh, that was beautiful. I can't follow yeah. that <laughs> Um, I'll just add a little something, um, because as, as you were speaking, kind of taking us through that, that beautiful biblical journey of, you know, God preparing the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and it coming to fruition in the new, um, I kept thinking about the first time I attended the Pentecost liturgy in the Byzantine church, um, and all the beautiful greenery. And the green vestments and the flowers and and just it's you know we bedeck our temples in green for the feast of Pentecost um, and I'm looking around wondering like where's the red where's the red you know because growing up Roman Catholic I was used to red on the on the feast of Pentecost but that image of you know it's the Spirit that's bringing new life right this is God's new people right this is His new covenant people. Um, and really, beginning that work which we just finished talking about—that—that that eschatological work that Christ will complete—well, that work has already started uh, with the outpouring of, of the Spirit at Pentecost and the work of the Church. Right, the Church is bringing about the work of renewing all creation in the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, I, I love the—it's one of my favorite times because of that that kind of all-encompassing image of that newness of life that new growth that that has come through the church
0: one Robert I think we're kind of uh we're losing your audio there for just a second can you hear us I
2: he's frozen on my screen
0: he's a little frozen on mine too darn internet <laughs> it's just the way it happens okay am i back, am I back?
1: back? okay, okay. Back. all right what well, what was the last thing you heard um
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well, well <laughs> that's oh, what I heard. that's about that's, what i
2: heard too yeah it's
0: uh, okay i'll go ahead and it was, cut it out you, you know okay. you were, uh, maybe i'll maybe i'll interject something if that's okay yes yeah know. go ahead yeah Yeah, yeah. You know, Robert, one of the things that I find interesting, too, is that this feast is oftentimes referred to as the birth of the church, the birthday of the church. And and I think if if we go back to the scriptures, if we look at Luke and Acts, Luke and Acts sort of form one sort of narrative unit, right, Uh, written by uh, Luke the Evangelist. And there's certain parallelism parallelism that's being uh, made here between the Annunciation, the mystery of the Annunciation, the overshadowing of the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit conceiving in her womb uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the moment of the incarnation, something we'll celebrate here on March 25th, uh, so, so, so relatively soon. That, that same uh, overshadowing occurs of the Virgin Mary in the upper room and over the apostles. And at that moment, what is, what is conceived? The mystical body of Christ, the church, uh, by the same power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I, I happen to like icons, and in our parish we have one um, that that have the Virgin Mary there in the upper room because I think mm. I think we were kind of missing that connection that Luke uh, certainly makes um, with the Virgin Mary being with the apostles and the over interceding and praying and the Holy Spirit coming upon the church uh, in uh, to, to form them to be truly what we read about in Revelation twelve. Uh, you know, her spiritual offspring, those who keep the commandments of God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she is the woman crowned with 12 stars. And uh, she is the, the the mother of the ruler of the, of the nations. And these are now her offspring. So it's, it's a beautiful parallel that I think is, uh, it says a lot about what Pentecost is and the role of the Virgin Mary in interceding for us and praying for us for the Holy Spirit.
1: Uh, wonderful. Very good point. Very good point. Absolutely. All right. Um, man, we've we've swept through Old Testament, New Testament. Let's let's focus down on the individual Catholic Christian. Um, you know, because we encounter the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, and sometimes it's it's easy to miss, right? It's easy to miss the the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Um, so let's let's talk about our our daily lives and our prayer life. Um, and our really our, our spiritual walk with the Holy Spirit. So, Father Anthony, how do we encounter the Holy Spirit in our daily lives? Um, how can we open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit um, as we uh, journey through our own spiritual lives? And maybe uh, if there's any particular uh, Lenten focus, we can we can spin on this. That'd be very very apropos as we're we're all preparing for Lent. Mm-hmm.
2: Well. We've talked before how the goal of all human existence is theosis, to become like God. You know, that, that, that God wants us to be filled with his own supernatural life and to become like him. Uh, that's the goal, the ultimate goal for all human beings. Uh, but that's something we can never accomplish on our own. So the Holy Spirit, you know, comes to us, you know, and, and offers to help us. You know, the Holy Spirit is there to help shape us to become more and more godlike, to progress in theosis. Um, And, you know, we experience this in many ways, of course, in the sacraments of the church. You know, in our Byzantine tradition, we especially emphasize that all of the sacraments come to us through the Holy Spirit. Um, That's a big thing. But on a more personal basis, the Holy Spirit is always there inviting us into a deeper relationship and wanting to work with us, uh, to shape us. But we have to cooperate. So there's this principle called synergy, you know, synergia that we have the opportunity uh, to be vessels that the Holy Spirit works through and shapes. But we have to open ourselves up to that. Uh, I know in my own life, and my own ministry, I've learned that if I'm willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, I can accomplish things I never thought I could. Um, but the key thing is I have to get myself out of the way. You know, I have to re- get my own ego out of the equation, my own wants, my own desires. And when I do that, uh, the Holy Spirit can oftentimes, you know, take charge in a sense and accomplish things I could never do on my own. But that really applies to everything we do in life. You know, our entire walk through life, we can go our way or we can walk with God and we can walk with the Holy spirit guiding us and filling us. And that really is the goal. And the Holy spirit also uh, will give us gifts. If there are things we're trying to accomplish in life, things we're trying to accomplish for our mission in the church, for the glory of God, the Holy Spirit will often give us the gifts we need to be able to do that. Um, That's why, for example, you know, St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that there is one spirit and there are many gifts. And that's why in our prayer, when we said earlier today, we talk about the Holy spirit as the treasury of blessings. There are all these gifts that that are there, but we have to be willing to cooperate to receive them. Uh, Speaking from a personal level in my own life, I've struggled since I was a child with severe crippling anxiety. Uh, when I was a little boy, making a phone call terrified me. And I've struggled with it my entire life. The fact that I'm able to get on and, and do these webinars, right? i able to preach in a church. T- to me, that feels near miraculous. And that's me being open to the Holy Spirit and getting my own ego
1: out of the way. It's, that's cooperation. That's synergy. Yeah, wonderful. Um, resonates a lot with me too. That line, get, getting out of the way and allowing the Holy Spirit in. Um, I know in my own life, and even even recently, you know, we can we make plans and we try to do good, right? We're we're trying to serve the Lord, and when we try to do, you know, come up with our own path, right? Um, you know, if you want to make plans, right? And he, he does, you know, um, but I found especially like, I mean, th- this whole podcast experience that we've been doing um, this webinar series, um, not my idea, didn't come up with it, um, came out of nowhere, but it's been such a tremendous blessing to my life to participate in this. Um, and that's me getting out of the way and letting the Holy Spirit do the driving. Um, that can be tough. That can be tough. And that's, you know, that overcoming our own kind of self-will, that's a big part of the, the journey of the great fast, right? Um, so that's, that's definitely um, becoming that synergy, becoming more docile to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Wonderful. All right. Um, the next segment in the Catechism, especially uh, paragraph 271, 272, um, talks about the church um, and, you know, the, the kind of that Pentecost experience as being the birthday of the church, with Father Daniel talked about. Uh, but the catechism uses a particular phrase that the church is an icon of the Holy Trinity. It's a beautiful, beautiful image for the church, but it's also very difficult to understand sometimes. How is the church? an icon of the Holy Trinity, because oftentimes our own communities, our own church can look like a pretty messy place. So what does that mean that the church is an icon of the Holy Trinity? How, how can we understand that? So father Daniel or father Anthony.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I uh, think the, I think what I would, um, what I would say, first of all, obviously, you know, the most obvious connection is that um, the, uh, the the Trinity is is three in one, right? So we have uh, unity and diversity uh, brought together in the communion of of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and that the the Church is called to uh, in its own common life, uh, in its own um, its own way of. Um, of, of living the gospel, living, living, uh, her mission, uh, is called to reflect that unity and diversity in the church, unity in, in, in the matter of, of faith, uh, in the matter of worship, in the matter of, of, uh, of service and leadership in the church and, and a common life, a communion, all of what we see in Acts chapter two, verse 42, right? You know, they, they have, they, um, participated in the apostles teaching and in the worship and the breaking of the bread and in the prayers and in the and the and the koinonia the communion of life at the same time out of that um, with the apostolic mission they they live a life uh, that uh, that is uh, is among the nations and so that diversity is expressed especially through the different churches Uh, that were established by the apostles that together form that communion, that common life of the nations, predicated not upon a political ideology uh, or a racial or ethnic composition, uh, but rather, as St. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, you know, all we have is Christ. And, and that's all that matters. Right. And so if it's uh, if it's an, an African brother or sister, if it's an Eskimo brother, I, mean, I guess we can't say Eskimo anymore. But, but, you know, whatever the the indigenous people happen to be, uh, you know, in the uh, the northern part of the hemisphere, if it's uh, Americans or South America, does not matter? Uh, we have now a new principle of unity. And and that that other part of the Trinitarian connection is that we participate in the unity uh the holiness uh and um and the care uh and the pastoral care and concern in the economic trinity for the whole world so the church is meant to participate in that as well so i i mean those are just some initial thoughts that i have uh regarding that um uh regarding regarding the connection between the trinity and and the church sure
1: sure um yeah that 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 uh that's the participation that we're called to participate in that and of, you know, I, it can, it can be difficult to see sometimes, you know, in our, you know, our, as the church walks forward, it seems like the church sometimes hinders herself because of this scandal or that, or this tarnish or that, um, you know, oftentimes the human element of the church gets in the way and um, I, I met a priest years ago who used the image of, you know, the, the image of the church as as the icon of the Holy Trinity, but he said, you know, I've come across a lot of icons in my in my day, and many of them get tarnished. You know, they get the soot from the oil lamps, or you know, they're just not um, they're not kept up well. And so, just like that icon that has been well well cared for and well or, or well used, that can get that tarnish on it oftentimes it's the work of the church to remove and refresh that, uh, you know, remove those stains. Um, And that's, that's our work. Um, That's part of that participation, part of that work of the spirit to call on the spirit. I think in every generation to renew the church, right. To make the icon of the Holy Trinity shine forth now in and through the church. Um, And sometimes we do a better job than others, you know, and, and certainly we've, We've, uh, we've struggled with the, the tarnish of the church in, in recent years, um, but we have that opportunity to call on the Holy Spirit to bring about that work of renewal, um, and I think sometimes we forget about that. I think sometimes we focus so much on the tarnish that we forget, the whole, we forget about the Holy Spirit. Um, so we need to call on the Holy Spirit to renew the church, absolutely. So, Father Anthony, anything to add?
2: I was just thinking about a a book that I read years ago, which really stuck with me. It's kind of a a book of heavy theology, so to speak, but it's called uh, Being as Communion by John Zizelis. And he talks in there, you know, about the Holy Trinity being ultimately this communion and how we're all relational and how we're all, you know, meant to be pulled into that relationship, into that community. And that really is what the church is. It's that community with the Holy Spirit.
1: All right. So we've been talking about the life of the Spirit in regards to the church um, and we throw out that term the church a lot um, and that's it's quite a claim when we call ourselves the church right um, because we look at our world at our culture, and there are many churches right who claim to be founded by christ um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit because the Christ our Pasca talks about. You know, the reason why we make that claim is because we have three marks. We're one, we're holy, or four marks, one holy, catholic, and apostolic. So let's break that down a bit. And maybe one thing that we can address um, that's part of our particular, I guess, Byzantine charism is how do we relate to the Orthodox churches? So let's start there. Father Anthony, do you want to kick us off?
2: Yes, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, again, I'm going to speak from a Catholic perspective and from a Catholic perspective, the Catholic church is the original Christian church, you know, founded by Jesus with uh, Peter, you know, the Pope serving as the guardian of unity. But that being said, the church is visible to us and the actual church itself aren't necessarily one and the same, uh, there are elements of the church that extend outside its visible boundaries. You know, and the fact that, you know, the Orthodox churches have the same Eucharist, they have the same, you know, seven sacraments, um, they are connected to us. They are a part of the church, even if they're not part of the, the visible structure that we identify as the church. And there are elements also, of course, in uh, Protestant denominations. Uh, baptism is an entrance into the church. So they're also united with us in some way. So on one hand, we identify the church that Jesus founded as being the Catholic Church, but we recognize that there are elements of it outside the visible boundaries.
1: Father Daniel, anything to add?
0: No, I, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a fair way to express, you know, our, our relationship with the Orthodox, most especially, is that, um, is, uh, you know, the relationship of, of sister churches, You know where we have this common life, um, you know, I I I tend to think of the Great Schism as not so great uh, as as it uh, not not just because it wasn't a good thing to happen, but because I I don't I don't think the division is as deep as uh, some might like it to be uh, or want to almost perpetuate. Um, And so you know these are churches we are. We have a common life, a common tradition, a common teaching magisterium as well. Um, but there are differences that come up, especially where uh, you know there is a desire to sort of stand out in opposition and define themselves, uh, define ourselves in opposition to each other. Where we have that happening is uh, is really tragic. And um, and I I don't I don't think it's I don't think Christ can be found in in these kinds of polemical. Um, definitions and, and ways of defining ourselves, more often than not in um, sort of calm dialogue and discussion, even where there's points of disagreement, there's still charity uh, uh, that, that undergirds those discussions, and a, a heartfelt desire to pursue the truth and true fraternity among our churches. So I think you know, I tend to rely more on the um, on the di- official dialogues. Uh, to kind of guide the conversation, then the unofficial dialogues, especially like on social media, you know, that, that tends to be uh, where, where we see a lot of division. And, and the last thing I would say is, you know, the important thing about, about our division is, you know, we've all inherited a history that none of us created, none of us created this division, but, but we do have an option and a, and a choice to go forward, how we will pursue whatever our history is, how we pursue unity, which is the will of Christ going forward. This is, this is why we need to get to know one another, pray for one another, and dialogue with one another. So that's, that's the only thing I would say.
2: Uh, yeah. Great point, Father. You know, the, the schism between Orthodox and Catholics isn't nearly as deep as is often made out to be. Um, yeah. But I've said this before. The internet is the stronghold of the schism. Yes, it's the place where the schism is the most real yeah. and the strongest. The internet, especially social media, but when you actually get into the real world and interact with real life Orthodox, uh, more often than not, the experiences are more, much more positive.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. I absolutely agree. Um, and I've, I've, I know you, you, you two have experienced this as well. And, and this touches on something else. That I guess is unique about our ecclesiology. um, We have an emphasis on kind of that local level of ecclesial communion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, at at least I've experienced it in my my own local community among the various Orthodox churches that are here. Um, We have wonderful conversations, we have, um, you know, kind of that hospitality between the parishes they come to our food festival. We go to the, to theirs. Um, we attend common events together. Um, there's no trouble praying together. I mean, it's like we click on so many different levels. So maybe let's spend a couple of minutes talking about kind of that particular emphasis of, of the local level of ecclesial communion and how we live that out in the spirit.
0: I I think, well, yes, I think the, um, you know, there was this great Ratzinger-Casper debate about the primacy of universal the universal church versus the local church. I, I, I think the answer is sort of a both and kind of kind of thing. I mean, certainly, you know, we are the church sojourning in Phoenix or in Philadelphia or you know, even in in Alabama. You know, it's the, it's the church sojourning there. We we have this sense of of place related to the church, but that that. The church also connects to a broader communion again you know it's not we're not meant to be national churches we're not meant to be uh we're meant to be a a church of the nations not national churches and so so the local church is that manifestation or expression of the, the the common life of the body of christ all those catholic elements are part of our of our life as a church so you know the celebrate centrality of the eucharist uh all the things in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 that we, that we talk about, you know, apostolic faith, worship, leadership, common life. Um, but our, our attentions are oftentimes drawn away from the local church. And this, I think, is part of the problem of the media. And I encounter this all the time, you know, where people's attentions are on well, you know, what did the Pope say on a plane? Or, uh, you know, who's, who's arguing with whom and who's separated from whom? In uh, in the different Orthodox jurisdictions, and and I look at that and I say, well, does that affect any of my life in the local church of my eparchy and in my parish? And the answer is, quite frankly, no. I mean, the only thing that would change once we we get a new pope, uh, which we in, in, inevitably will have a new pope, is the name that I commemorate. Nothing is going to change as far as faith, as far as worship, as far as participation in that a lot of it is um, a, a distraction. I think it's, it, it really pulls our heart away from the local mission of the church, and we should be paying more attention to what our local bishop says and teaches than what the pope says, And and that doesn't make me less Catholic. It just means on a day-to-day basis. Now, the pope can say some extraordinary things, and this is not being dismissive of the pope, any pope, any pope, no matter how holy or saintly he is or good or or wise or what great creative in his teaching, what matters is our shepherd who is the vicar of Christ for the local church we need to be paying attention to our pastors and I that's one of the things I appreciate about the fact that we have a throne in our church our local parish has a throne for that bishop nobody sits there but the bishop so we need to be listening to our local church and our local bishop
2: Justin jump in on that really quickly um, you know what you said father Daniel about looking at our local church, right, not being so fixated on what's going on in Rome, I think is is very important, Uh, but it's also spiritually healthy, I think. Uh, You know, our spiritual life is nourished by the local community much more so than it is by, you know, uh, bureaucrats in Rome or wherever. Uh, You know, years ago, a fellow contacted me who was about ready to leave Catholicism. He was about ready to go. And I asked him what the problem was. And I asked him about his local parish. He said, oh, my, my local parish that I belong to is wonderful. We have a beautiful liturgy, great pastor, uh, you know, this very active parish, a lot of opportunities to grow in faith. I, I absolutely love it there. But I'm ready to leave Catholicism. I'm like, well, well, why? Well, you know, so-and-so on the internet says this, and it, it turns out he was spending a lot of time uh, reading Catholic media outlets that tend to dwell on the negative, not even not EWTN, but there are certain outlets that dwell heavily on the negative. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, there are certain podcasters who tend to just, you know, wallow in the worst news about the church and interpret everything in the worst way possible. He was watching those people, reading those outlets, and it was, it was destroying him spiritually. And I said to him, before you leave Catholicism, just try something. I want you to take a month and not look at any Catholic media outlets. Just focus on your spiritual life in the local parish for a month and then come back to me. A month later, he contacted me and he said, wow, I feel so much better. I no longer feel like I need to leave. I'm actually happy, fulfilled. And we have to remember that, that it's the local church that really matters to our spiritual life, much more so than what's going on thousands of miles away.
0: I call it dystopic ecclesiology. You know, these yep. are the purveyors of of dystopic ecclesiology, and I mean, yeah, there's some things that concern us, but but what can we truly control? And and at the same time, how does it really impact us? It really doesn't. It really doesn't. If we if we don't allow, I thought that was. I think that's very wise advice, Father Deacon.
1: I agree, and I think it's especially uh, pointed as we approach the Great Fast, um, because yeah, you can get you can. Become a glutton on social media, and just consume all that vitriol and all that kind of the the polemics. And it is; it's a real spiritual danger. It's a real spirit because you miss you miss that connection to your local community. You know that was one thing I really appreciated about um, the par- uh, I think it's paragraph two ninety in Christ our Pascha when it talks about the experience of the Eucharistic table. At, in the local church with the bishop and the faithful, right, as an exercise of Catholicity, right? We often hear that word Catholic, and we think, okay, I know that means universal, and our minds immediately think Pope in Rome, right? We immediately think big picture, but really what that means is the local community gathered around the bishop at the table of the Lord is an exercise in our catholicity. We we miss that. It's so easy to gloss over, but so so important to recapture. Um, Very good. All right, and as always, we are quickly running out of time. Um, that means we're having good conversation, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So the last portion that we're supposed to cover for this evening, Christ our Pascha, three hundred one to three hundred eight, um, it's kind of a Pandora's box because it touches on. What is a self-governing church? What is synodality? Of course, synodality is everything that we hear in the blogosphere about what's going on in precisely Rome, which we just said, well, we should pay a little less attention. Um, But I think it is important to maybe introduce that topic of synodality um, so that we can pick it up next time. So maybe let's start with maybe just a definition. Let's define what is synodality and maybe what synodality is not as we conclude our, our time together tonight. So Father well, Daniel or Father Anthony?
2: I'll begin with saying what synodality is not. It's not a free-for-all where the loudest voices get what they want. And unfortunately, I, I think in some you know, sectors of Catholicism today, when they're talking about synods, they envision this free-for-all where they walk away with, with every, uh, every dream of theirs fulfilled. That's not what it is. Uh, I'm Ukrainian Catholic, and my church is governed by a synod. And that really is a, you know, a traditional structure within Eastern Christianity. Uh, so we have a patriarch and we have a synod of bishops and they come together and they make decisions and, and they kind of steer the church. They steer the church. As a matter of fact, this wonderful catechism we're reading, you know, Crestor was produced by this synod. It's a product of synodality at its best. Uh, so The Synod, you know, ultimately is hierarchical, but it does take into account, you know, the general feeling and the beliefs and what's important to the average layperson as well. Uh, But ultimately, the goal is for the Synod to be open to the Holy Spirit and to be guided by the Lord uh, to lead us to truth and to strengthen the church.
0: Yeah, the only thing I would add to that wonderful way of saying what the Synod is not and and also what the Synod is— you know, the synod being um, uh, being sort of the natural state of the church, you know, the, uh, the, that it's an assembly, uh, it's, it's a calling together, uh, but but what's important about that calling together is that it's, it's a calling together by the word of God, and so there's a lot of talk about this idea of listening, you know, we need to listen uh, in the church, and absolutely, that's, that's true. I think we do need to listen, but the first thing we need to listen to is the word of God the word of God, you know, is what draws us together as a people. It is what informs our faith. Uh, it is the the word that that gives us that that grace of encounter with God and that participation in the divine life. Uh, that's where we need to start. And so uh, this idea of, well, we need to listen to dissenting voices kind of along the lines with that free-for-all, uh, where we kind of pile in whatever wishes we want into uh and 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 put it under the rubric of synodality, um, where we call into question our faith. I, I was having a conversation with a deacon friend of mine, and and he was very distressed because he said, you know, in, in this kind of this movement towards synodality, people are calling to question foundational uh, teachings of the moral magisterium of the Catholic Church, um, and that's not what synodality is. Synodality principally, in, in terms of gathering us together to listen to the word, is also about governance. It's about, um, it's about mission. Uh, it's about extending the boundaries of the church to reach hearts and souls. And we don't get there by compromising the kerygma, by compromising the gospel, or by, by you know, sus- putting into suspended animation uh, our faith uh, in, uh, in the teachings and, and things that have been taught for 2,000 years by the Catholic church. So so I think we really have to be very balanced in our expectations around synodality but understand that we all need to participate in the life and mission of the church so it's not just for the priests or for the deacons or for the deacon candidates or for the bishops you know it's like well that's their job no 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 you don't understand our job the church is an upended pyramid you know and uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of service and our role is to is to support the realization of the royal priesthood of Christ of the baptized uh, and to provide the, the support, the guidance to realize your full potential in Christ. So, so I think those are points that need to be emphasized properly. It's proper to talk about participation. Um, it's pop- proper to talk about listening, but our first, the first thing we should be listening to is, is the word of God with, with hearts open to what the word of God has to teach us. And then, we can we can start looking at other other ways of of sharing mission and uh, spreading that word of God.
1: Absolutely, I love that that phrase that you use, extending the boundaries of the church to reach hearts and minds, hearts and souls. Um, reminded me a lot of when you were discussing Pentecost. Mm. It, that's what we need. I mean, I think Pentecost was the the first and really uh, you know a powerful synod right is mm-hmm. what established the church that's what we need um that's what you know and that's the model of synodality i think it is. so and a wonderful way to wrap up our time this evening um come, coming full circle uh, back to pentecost so thank you everyone for for watching this webinar um uh, we'll be back with you next time with a uh, a full audience and audience participation and book giveaway Um, and Bianca will be back with us and we'll also have Father Michael Wynn with us next time which will be a lot of fun so thank you all very much for your attention Uh, great to be with you again Uh, please keep us in your prayers as we enter the Lenten season pray for peace in Ukraine um, and we take all of your intentions to heart in our own prayers so thank you all very much and have a wonderful evening